Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week, I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi guys, welcome back. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. I'm joined by Dr. Alan Christiansen today. And Dr. Alan Christiansen, if you're not aware, is a naturopathic endocrinologist who specializes in thyroid function, specifically Hashimoto's, hypothyroidism, and Graves' disease. He has been actively practicing in Scottsdale, Arizona since 1996 and is the founding physician behind Integrative Health. He's a New York Times best-selling author whose books include The Metabolism Reset Diet, The Adrenal Reset Diet, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Thyroid Disease. Dr. Christensen regularly appears on national media like Dr. Oz, The Doctors, and The Today Show. He's the founding president behind the Endocrine Association of Naturopathic Physicians. In this episode, we discuss why hormones are so important and signs if our adrenals or our thyroid are out of whack. How to tell the difference between adrenal and thyroid dysfunction because they can have similar symptoms but there are differentiating factors supportive nutrients for thyroid function with the potential dangers of excessive iodine supplementation how to improve our metabolic health by supporting our thyroid and our liver the role of our liver and why it's so crucial for hormone balance blood glucose regulation and immunity and what is fatty liver syndrome, why do many people struggle with this, and how to improve our liver and detoxification naturally. I really think you guys are going to love this episode. Dr. Christensen is so funny and so knowledgeable, so let's get into it. Hi, Dr. Christensen. Thank you so much for your time today. Why don't you start off by telling us a bit about who you are and how you got into specialising in the areas of adrenal, thyroid, and then liver and detoxification, metabolism, all those things. <laughs> yeah, I'm a naturopathic endocrinologist. And I came into this from you know managing my own health struggles like many of us have. Uh, I was a kid that had complications from cerebral palsy. I had seizures and I put on a lot of weight in my early years. I, I couldn't really do physical activities. I struggled with a lot of chronic pain issues. And yeah, um, Health books really changed my life, uh, fitness, diet, you know, it was not straightforward, but lots of fits and starts. And it led me to believe that lifestyle was huge and that education was super important. So it made me passionate about wanting to go into medicine and utilize those things as well. And in my early years in clinical rotations, I really identified with those who had thyroid disease. And to me, it seemed like they were trying to do the things that helped me. They're trying to really engage in lifestyle, but their body's hormones were blocking that from working. So it just became a real passion to help figure out how to safely reverse that so lifestyle could be effective for more people. 
And why are hormones so important? What do they do for our body? So in terms of adrenals and thyroids, how does that affect our whole well-being? Yeah, great question. Lots of ways. You know, the adrenals are the main mediator of the stress response. Our, our bodies are a product of millions of years of adaptation and not a lot of big change in our stress response for probably 100,000 years or more. So we very readily get pushed into a survival mode, which is helpful in survival settings, but can be a hindrance in modern life, activating it so frequently. So that's the adrenal role. The thyroid gland is the main thing that controls how quickly we burn fuel, you know, how, how much we put out in the course of the day. And that affects energy, based on metabolic rate, you know, body weight, also a lot of tissue repair, skin, hair, nails. And it's affected by environmental toxicants. So the disease of the gland is on the increase. So those are things that affect people quite a bit in their day-to-day -day health. Mm -hmm. And how do they have a knock-on effect on our female sex hormones? Yeah, for sure. So there are some direct ways by which changes in thyroid hormones acts on the ovaries. The ovaries have receptors for T3 and T2, a couple of the more active thyroid hormones. And if those hormones are lacking or if they're fluctuating, then directly the ovaries are less effective. So there's that. Uh, cortisol, the main adrenal hormone, it has a rhythm to where we make more of it in the morning and we shut it off as the day goes along. And that rhythm allows the cells to absorb and take in estradiol and progesterone properly. When that rhythm is disrupted, if it's always high or always low or backward, then the cells become more resistant. And that causes there to be less proper response to estrogen, progesterone signaling from the ovaries, but also it makes those hormones not get broken down properly. So they're not getting into the cells, they're staying in the bloodstream, and there can be too much of them. So we can see a lack of response in some ways and then dominance patterns in others. In terms of the stresses that can contribute to thyroid and adrenal dysfunction, you've mentioned the mental stress, I think that's probably the biggest, and the environmental toxins. Are there any other stresses to be aware of or what types of environmental toxins are we, are we concerned about? Yeah, good question. So stress is a thing that in medicine and research, we, by stress, we mean anything that pushes the body out of balance. When we're talking in like normal conversations, we often refer to stress as mental emotional stress. And that's, that's a big thing that affects us a lot by itself. So when the adrenal function is off, in most cases, it's a type of dysfunction. It's the body trying to adapt to difficult circumstances. When thyroid function is off, it's typically more of a disease. So the gland itself is broken or partially broken, and it can't work well. And the things that drive the latter are more so autoimmune abnormalities through the body attacking it. And the former, you mentioned the mental emotional stress being big, uh, blood sugar fluctuations, uh, changes in times of our daily habits, you know, when we eat, when we sleep, those are big factors. Those are big circadian stressors that affect the adrenals. Hmm. Just being out of touch with nature, not being outside, being stuck inside all day. They're really yeah. big stressors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even if we can see, you know, outdoors or seeing the light or whatnot, it's not the same as actually being in it. Hmm. That is a really big thing that regulates our body cycles. Exactly. And our body expect it. We're humans. That's what we're designed to, we're designed to do. We're designed to be outside in nature, not cooped up inside an office all day long. <laughs> and what are some signs and symptoms of dysfunction in 
let's start off with the thyroid. So what are some signs and symptoms and how does someone know if they're dealing with thyroid dysfunction? You know, when it's not working well, there's, there's a lot of possible symptoms. Your thyroid hormones affect everything head to toe. So they, they could affect anything, but some symptoms are stronger predictors than others. Uh, some of the ones that are strongest predictors are not ones that are thought about quite as much. Uh, hoarseness in the throat, changes in the voice, difficulty swallowing, those are amongst the stronger predictors of there being thyroid disease. And those come back to the anatomical location of the thyroid. And if it's swelling or enlarging, the various things that it puts pressure on. So there's those. Um, also generalized fatigue patterns, chronic muscular pain. There are many other symptoms that are often classically thought of ones such as weight struggles or hair thinning and uh, constipation. Those are some big ones too. And one, one quick note, uh, they're especially suspicious to be thyroid in nature when someone can point to a time frame in which they became really prominent. So if it's always been there to some extent, it still could be from the thyroid, but it's really suspicious if this was like never an issue until last November. And then these three things all went off last November, just making up a time frame. but there's a time frame someone could point to. So that's a really suspicious sign for it being more thyroid related. Yeah, I always make sure I ask that question with clients. When was the last time you felt well? And that's always mm -hmm. a really important factor in determining what's going on with their health. For sure. There is some similarities in terms of symptoms with adrenal dysfunction, so the, the fatigue, low moods. Are there any differentiating factors? You know, those are some good ones you mentioned. The, I'll talk about a few more, but yes, a, a big differentiating factor in general, we think about the adrenals, one of their prime roles is regulating the body's daily cycles, the circadian rhythms. So a real hallmark sign is that these symptoms have a daily pattern. And there's a certain time of day in which they're always worse. Maybe one time of day they tend to really clear up, but there's often a predictable rhythm to them, good or bad. So that by itself is suspicious of there being some adrenal involvement. Um, you mentioned some really good ones there. Yeah, fatigue patterns. A specific subcategory of that is poor activity tolerance. So someone may enjoy long walks or physical activity, but they know that if they do it, they may really suffer for a few days afterward, mm -hmm. that the recovery seems just inordinate. You know, how long it takes them to bounce back again just doesn't seem to make sense. So that's a really particular pattern along with the fatigue. A few more specific ones we can see also will be uh, getting up quickly and feeling faint or dizzy. And that can correlate with a poor ability for the adrenals to adjust the blood pressure to positional changes. And then cravings for things or sweet things, kinds of that too. And can we just go off symptoms in determining what's going on and kind of try and improve those things ourselves? Or is it really important to test and not guess in this situation? Well, you know, it's a good question. And you could think about perhaps how severe symptoms were, how long they had gone on for, how complicated someone's medical history was. Now, I mentioned before about how if the thyroid function is off, it's generally more of a disease state. If the adrenal function is off, it's more of an imbalance. There are adrenal diseases. They are more rare. They are more severe, so they happen. But they're less commonly present if someone is, you know, at a milder, earlier stage of symptoms. So if someone were suspicious of those adrenal symptoms, it's quite reasonable to think about lifestyle steps and, you know, daily hygiene and, you know, timing things in, in better ways and doing some scrutiny that way. 
if someone does have a strong suspicion of thyroid symptoms, especially some of those structural symptoms, that's something where it's probably better to more early along pull in some medical care and guidance and seek out a proper diagnosis. And do you find that with thyroid in particular, if someone catches it early enough before there's any major damage done to the thyroid, they, they address the diet, the lifestyle, is there a way to reverse maybe the autoimmune process or reverse any further destruction from occurring? Yeah, so you're right, it's autoimmune in most cases. So Hashimoto's is the main culprit of thyroid disease. Graves is next most common. They're, they're both autoimmune. And in the case of Hashimoto's, about 26, 27% of time, people spontaneously recover, regardless of what they've done, good or bad. It just seems to happen. And there's a lot of data around that. So that does occur. And people think a lot about how to stop the disease process. And there are certainly things that can raise that 27% cat response rate. I think that's helpful. The thing I orient people on the most is just is maximizing quality of life and reversing symptoms. You know, how, how, how well can that happen? And I would argue that's always doable. And for yeah, at least a quarter of people or more, that can also include the thyroid functioning stably again. For the remaining people, that may involve having to compensate for the thyroid being underactive, but done well, there's no negatives to that. And they can often function and feel as well or better than they did before it all started. Yeah, that's really important to know and inspiring for people who may think oh, I'm stuck with it. Maybe I've got a family history of thyroid issues. Um, I'm just destined to be on thyroxine forever. How do you know? And, that, and, yeah. and I hear that a lot. And yeah. and I always I was pushed back. I say, well, let's let's think about this. So what we're talking about really is the pill count. We're talking about how many pills you're taking in the course of the day. And if your highest priority is take one fewer pill in the day, there's probably one pill somewhere else that's not as critical that you could mm -hmm. drop. Yeah. You know, and when you think about it that way, that's not the most important goal in life is to have a certain pill count. <laughs> you know, the most important goal is to feel your best and thrive. And <laughs> Very true. We've got a thyroid retreat coming up next week. We bring people together and work with them in person. And I'm going through all their history and their data. And the average number of pills that they're taking coming into it, people who have been struggling with this for a while, they're doing a lot on their own with their, do their doctors. What's the average number of supplements you might guess that people are taking? Mm, 10? Um, I probably would have guessed something like that. Yeah. Uh, I've done, I, I've counted the number of supplements when people come into these retreats for the last four retreats. The average is almost exactly 26. Almost oh. everyone comes in on whatever reason, 26 is like the magic number. I'll see a few more, a few less. So I, I love having people walk away with like two rather yeah. than 26. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the best feeling ever. They need a small suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of supplements, are there any in particular that you love to use for thyroid health? You know, it's important to get adequate selenium. Uh, there can be too little of that. And that can be a combination of supplemental forms and dietary forms. And, you know, all things that way, one can get too much, but there's a lot of benefit with getting roughly 100 to 200 micrograms total of selenium per day. There's also a fair amount of evidence on something called nigella sativa or black cumin seed oil and there's a specific extract of it that's been shown to do a good job lowering antibodies and lowering the body's overall autoimmune process in blinded human studies those are a couple of big ones one i think about a lot is iodine and there's there's what what do you do to help and then what do you not do to help <laughs> you know what do you what do you undo <laughs> yeah and that's one to where 
there, people can get too little, but in the modern world, it's far easier to get too much. And I've had so many great successes from people just by getting them down to a certain target on iodine by, by minimizing it. And the thyroid needs it, but, but too much can hurt it just as much as too little. Hmm. So you're not in the camp of mega milligram doses of iodine every single day, slathering it all over your body, eating a lot <laughs> of seaweed. <laughs> you know, it's funny. That all came about in 2004. And there was one person in a bunch of magazine articles. And then that spawned about four or five books. And they all had the same concept. Yeah. And we studied iodine more than any nutrient on the planet. It's been 100 years. And what happens is that nutrients can work in a way in which they facilitate a chemical reaction. They've got a nutritional role. And in some cases, their chemistry may cause them to do things that could be useful, but are not related to their nutritional role. Like you talked about like slathering on iodine. For quite a while, iodine's been used topically for infections. And if you, if you had a snag of a thorn on your arm and that was getting swollen, you know, topical iodine could kill some of those bacteria. However, those bacteria would not mean that you had an iodine deficiency, right? Mm. That's almost silly. Just because yeah. iodine can help kill the bacteria doesn't yeah. mean you were deficient in iodine. It was just a useful thing on the surface. So back in 2004, a gynecologist saw some papers saying how megadose iodine was effective to help fibrocystic breast disease. And data supported that. You know, there are side effects and there's harm from that, but it, it isn't a treatment that often does help. And he conflated the drug-like effect that it had in that context with a nutritional role. And he argued, oh, wow, these women took 14,000 micrograms and it helped fibrocystic breast disease. Somehow they must have needed that much iodine. There must be some odd reason why they needed to take, you know, 1,100 times more than we thought was necessary. And those ideas just kind of ran and spiraled and led to all the, all the iodine madness that we have, I think, dwindling down, but <laughs> still around a little bit. Yeah, there's <laughs> kind of two camps, isn't there? There's people who say, oh, it's the, the miracle cure for everything. And yeah, they're just obsessed with it. And that can be a little bit dangerous in some cases. Um, it can exacerbate things like Hashimoto's, thyroiditis, um, yeah. and cause more problems. Yeah. It's so ironic, but there's no single single factor shown to cause thyroid disease more consistently than iodine. And it's right. a total double-edged yeah. sword. You know, so you can have too much or too little. Another paradox is even if you're not getting too much or too little, just the change in your intake. So for example, Denmark, they were one of the more recent large countries to start fortifying with iodine. They did this back in 2000. And they did it well. You know, they went from an average intake of about 50 micrograms up to about 120 micrograms, totally appropriate. But just after that transition for the following decade, they saw significantly escalated rates of autoimmune thyroid disease. And we've come to expect that from countries that have gone through that change. So if you've got too much, too little, or if you've got a big swing in your iodine status, that itself unmasks thyroid disease. Yeah, and it's definitely a Goldilocks nutrient. Don't want too much, <laughs> don't want too little. <laughs> In terms of thyroid health, and you mentioned it's like the master metabolism of the body, what mm -hmm. else impacts metabolism and what is metabolism, just as an overview? Yeah, yeah great question. So think about that in two ways. In one sense, almost like a switch where it's like more or less, like how fast is the engine turning over? And that's really in the domain of the thyroid. The other part is that, you know, how healthy is the gas tank? You know, so if we're talking about an engine, imagine that your car had to be connected to the pump to run, you know, you need to have a long pump to, have to drive anywhere. So our bodies are like that, you know, we consume fuel 
at discrete times of day, whether that's once, twice, three, four times, whatever. The point is that we're not always consuming fuel, but we're always using fuel. So that's a big part of metabolism, is the ability to take on some fuel during mealtimes and store that in a way that we can get to it later. The problem is that people reach a state in which we can always take in fuel, but if we store it in certain ways, it becomes harmful, it becomes toxic fat, and we can't burn it easily later to get energy out of it. And that comes down to liver function. So yeah, so thyroid is how fast is the engine turning over, and liver function is how well does that gas tank store and release fuel. And is weight the main indicator that there's a problem or the other symptoms? Yeah, weight's a real strong one. You know, waist is even a little bit tighter of a correlation. And probably the most sensitive one we've seen is the height height to waist ratio. So not even height to weight and not even like waist to hip, but yeah, yeah height to waist ratio. And I love this one because it's easy math too. You know, a lot of things like BMI are really obtuse numbers to calculate, but <laughs> height to waist is half. It's that simple. Right. You know, easy math. If a gal were five feet tall, she's what, 60 inches. So her belly button circumference, if that were at or in excess of 30 inches, half of 60, that's a red flag for liver problems. Is it true that we can damage our metabolism? So in terms of undereating, overexercising, is that an issue? Well, it sure can be. And you know what happens is that I talked to a gal yesterday who was a fitness competitor, and she was uh, on the cover of all these magazines winning awards. And after, after one of these pinnacles of her uh, leanness and her body composition, she found herself with unexplained hypothyroidism and no signs of autoimmunity. And also she lost her menstrual cycles for about six months. And I explained to her that, you know, if we could, if we could, if we could take the place of your hormone system and, and speak aloud for it, you know, anthropomorphize for it, what was happening is your body knew that you were doing tons of movement, but there was no food coming in. And our, our primitive genes and mechanisms interpreted that as danger and famine, you know, that you were running away from bad stuff and there was a food shortage. So the logical response is to just crank down your metabolism. So your body's not going to starve and you're going to get through this bad time. And then the other thing your body's going to do in a case like that is you're sure the heck not going to want to pop out a baby in a world like that. You know, it's not a safe time to have the liability of pregnancy and all the, the strain in the body that comes from that. So, so yeah, her body shut down fertility and shut down her metabolism. And that was a, it was an adaptive response. So the word damage, I don't know if that word implies a sense of, I don't know, of, of finality or temporariness, you know, but so it, it can certainly be altered and perhaps you could say damaged, but I'm excited to, to see in people that it can come back again. It can heal and be repaired. But, but yeah, for sure, things like that can certainly hurt one's metabolism. And you can't expect from, from going at 12,000 calories a day to eating 2,000 calories a day because you are going to feel terrible and you probably will gain a ton of weight. So is it just a process of slowly increasing calories and continuing to manage stress, maybe cut back on the exercise a little bit? You know, those things can all be part of it. Uh, we did a clinical trial a few times in our practice in which we showed that you could change that quite a bit by a 28-day structured system. And that was really using high-quality plant protein, lots of slow-absorbed resistant starch, and then going low on both fats and carbs for a little while. 
So not, not restricting protein and keeping the blood sugar really stable and then nourishing the liver well. And that was a, a combination that's been shown to, to increase the resting basal metabolic rate. Okay, interesting. And you touched on the role of the liver. Will you just cover what the liver is, what it does? People just usually think of it in terms of alcohol. They don't really know <laughs> anything else that it does apart from that. So can you just give us an overview of why it's so important? Alcohol and bacon and onions, right? Yeah. That's what we think about liver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> One of my favorites. So the first thing that's often surprising is that it's our, it's our biggest organ by far. You know, it's not a little chunk over here. It's like the whole abdominal cavity. It's, it's large and it regulates every facet of our chemistry. So I talked about how we use fuel all the time. Well, that's, that's just part of it. We also use blood sugar. We're using various amino acids. We've got all these hormones circulating in our body. We've got countless nutrients. And ultimately, all these things are things we build out of our food components, but we're building them and housing them inside the liver and doling them out in precise amounts per our body's needs moment by moment. So there's that. It's also the main thing that's uh, regulating our immune response. You know, we, we absorb things in the intestinal tract, the things that come into us from our diet, but they're not really in our system until they get in the bloodstream. And when they get in the bloodstream, the first stop is the liver. It's called the first pass phenomena. There's a group of cells called the Kupfer cells that are specialized liver immune cells and they decide what the world is like around us and whether the immune system can be in a state of high alert and possibly attack itself or work normally. So it's also regulating the circulating hormones the glands produce. And then the big role for detox people are familiar with, that's certainly a big part of it as well. And what are some signs of maybe a sluggish liver or poor detoxification? You know, so the sluggish liver in general I think about three, three big variables. There's the, the, the weight, you know, weight or waste, however you think about that. And there's energy levels and there's appetite. So when your liver's doing a good job at, at that part of it, then those things just sync up. You know, you're, you're hungry, you eat a good meal and you're satisfied, and that achieves a, a good, good healthy body weight uh, when those things don't sync up. And so a couple common patterns people see is that they – they skimp and they compromise and they cut back on food and maybe they can make some movement towards a weight they prefer, but they feel tired and then their appetite gets out of control. So the body's not regulating it right. Or in the other scenario, maybe they're focusing on healthy food and not putting as much effort into restricting it. And and they could feel energized from that. They could control their appetite, but they're not seeing their weight change could even get worse. So those are all signs of the liver not working right in that sense. In terms of detox, some things that are common symptoms that way is that um, a classic thing is that someone could be in a supermarket and walk down the aisle that has all the detergents and cleaning products and they get a headache. You know, that's like one, one more level of toxic stress pushes them over the edge. So they're very chemically sensitive. You know, things bother them quite easily that way. And in terms of the appetite regulation, what about for someone who doesn't really experience hunger? So it's not like they're repulsed from food, but they just don't tend to get hungry. Is that a sign of good blood sugar control or is that a sign of maybe a problem? Um, If the other things are working well, if the energy is stable and the weight is where someone wants it to be, then that's fine. No no, no big issues that way. If those things are off, if someone's energy is not stable and they're 
not hungry, you know, much at all. And if they're even nauseous from even taking in water or things, then not a healthy sign. But, but yeah, if it's good in the context of energy and weight, then yeah, no problem. Great. How does the liver impact our hormones? So we've touched on the liver, the adrenals and the thyroid. How is the liver involved with this? Yeah, so in general, the glands themselves, like the thyroid, the adrenals you've mentioned, or the ovaries, the testicles, they make a lot more hormone than is expected to be needed. And a lot of what they make is in some kind of a precursor inactive state. So for example, the adrenals make mostly cortisone, which then gets converted to the more active cortisol. So the glands make a lot of beginning like precursor hormone, and then the liver will hold on to that and convert that as need be. So the thyroid mostly makes inactive T4. The liver is a big part of converting that and activating it. So yeah, it's really fine-tuning and regulating the hormones by storage and conversion. Mm-hmm. And they also, the liver also assists with the detoxification too, with like sex hormones, testosterone, mm-hmm. excess estrogen, plays a role in that as well, doesn't it? For sure. And that's inseparable from that conversion process. You're exactly right. It's a similar concept. So we we start to convert those hormones to activate them, but then also to inactivate them and finally get rid of them and turn them off. And those are part of how the liver is regulating all those hormones in circulation. Yeah. And you mentioned about the environmental toxins. So walking down the grocery aisle with all the perfumes or in like a shopping center where there's fragrances everywhere. What would you say to the people who don't believe in supporting liver detoxification? So they say, your liver knows what it's doing. You don't need to go on a cleanse or take any supplements to help. You don't need to interfere. Your body knows what it's doing. What would you say to that? Well, that certainly can happen, and that's the ideal scenario. But sadly, that's not always a scenario. You know, the, the, main, the main thing that drives this is called fatty liver syndrome, and it's, a, it's an overt disease, but it's something that's on a really big continuum. So tons of people that wouldn't qualify as being overtly in that disease are still in the continuum. And many that have the disease just haven't been diagnosed because of the, the guidelines are not often used well enough. So in that case, there's fat that builds up inside the liver cells that makes it less able to, to do its normal function. So, so yeah, in perfect scenarios, that's completely true. It would work fine by itself, but a large number of people are not in those perfect scenarios. We hear oftentimes fatty liver disease linked to alcohol. Some people think it's due to excess fat just because of the name, but what's actually the root cause of fatty liver disease for many people? You know, you're right. So alcohol can drive that. And the the real cause is there being more fuel than the liver can process. And fuel is a term I use to refer to fats, carbs, exogenous ketone supplements, uh, even alcohol. And they're all common in that they break down to something called oxaloacetate. And that's the main energy producing molecule your liver has to deal with. And if there's more of it that it can handle, it has to quickly convert that into a compound called triglyceride, which it can just store so it doesn't have to deal with it in that moment. And if there's too much triglyceride in or around those liver cells, that's what damages them. And yeah, it's, you're right, it's not just fat. It's also, many have talked about fructose being the main culprit, and yeah, not just fructose. And many have talked about ketones as being a magic answer. And they're all fuel. You know, it's like when, when mom said, don't worry about your, your gravy getting on your peas. It all goes in the same place, you know, and it's, that's what it is to your liver, whether it's carbs, fats, ketones, it all goes to the same thing. It's all oxaloacetate. So if there's more of that than your body can process, then the liver gets gummed up. Yeah. Cause I think still we 
still hear about it being carbs and sugars, the demonized, the, the things that are behind fatty liver disease. But would you just say it's a general, any food that you consume in just in excess? With the exception of protein, fiber, and resistant starch right, than okay. it is anything else. So that's okay. why I quickly talk about fuel. Yeah. Quick thing on sugar. Um, this is a rant I may go into in the next few days, but mm-hmm. I had a dear friend I was talking to on an interview and she was talking about just you know sugar turning into fat. And to be really precise, sugar doesn't turn into fat. That's <laughs> a big misnomer we talk about. So fat inside the body and fat inside the liver, it comes from three places. So subcutaneous fat, the stuff we got below our skin, it's pretty dynamic. The fat cells are always breaking open, spilling triglycerides, absorbing new triglycerides and regrowing. They're always in a state of flux. So what they spill off is one source of fat that can enter the liver, just the fat that your body's circulating. That's one. The second one is just dietary fat. So we consume fat, good, bad, or sideways, you know, whatever kind of fat it is, that comes in through the portal veins carried by chylomicrons, and that goes straight to the liver. That's number two. So number three is carbs, sugar that can make fat. That's called de novo lipogenesis. But in humans, that pathway can produce really no more than about four grams of fat per day, which is about half of a teaspoon. (laughs) So if you're on the most extreme low-fat diet, the max amount of fat you could make from sugar is about one-tenth of the fat you would get on a low-fat diet. So it's pretty irrelevant. And the irony is that the more obese someone is, the less they have de novo lipogenesis. They have less production of it. But the partial, the partial truth is that it doesn't matter what, your, what the overload comes from, whether the overload comes from carbs or fat. If there's any kind of an overload, your body shuts off beta oxidation. And whatever fat is coming from your fat cells or from your diet, will not be burned it will be stored so so yeah so so carbs really don't convert into fat in any meaningful way but too much carbs too much fats too much alcohol too much ketones whatever it is can shut off your body's ability to burn fat and then in that case all the fat coming from old fat cells or from dietary fat goes straight to storage interesting yeah we don't tend to hear any of that do we we just Every, I think every decade there's a new food group that's demonized. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> now it's carbohydrates. Probably next it'll be fat again or protein. There's always something going I'm on. I'm curious to see how it's going to play out. Exactly. Yeah, cycle it next time. Yeah, just going to cycle. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your, your ethos or your approach with diet? i uh, guessing you're not on any extreme low-carb keto or high-protein, vegan, anything like that. Are you just eat a balanced diet, don't eat too much. You know, that's a, that's a good thing. If uh, I call it the high fact diet. <laughs> <laughs> I actually like all the food categories. You know, we talk about eating a variety, but I think a lot, of, a lot of people who are health conscious become far too restrictive in their food categories. I mean, sure, we want to cut out junk food, no debates about that. But of the foods that are available for humans and have been for a few centuries, we want to have more categories of food for a lot of reasons. So I love a lot of food categories. And, and, and yeah, I love what you said about the quantity being an important thing. And, you know, I try hard to get a sense about my, my body's cues and feedback as far as types or amounts. But, but yeah, all, all types. I love shellfish and seafood and beans and legumes and whole grains and yogurt and eggs and tons of vegetables and fruits and nuts and seeds and all that stuff. <laughs> it's refreshing to hear such a, a balanced view. Again, it's not 
not common anymore. People are usually don't eat any grains, don't eat this, always eat this. And yeah, it can just be really confusing for the average person and not usually necessary at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so will you talk a bit about blood glucose balance? So maybe for someone who's struggling with insulin resistance or mm-hmm. elevated blood sugar, why is that a problem? Maybe what symptoms can it cause and how can we manage that naturally? Yeah, super good point. So the the problems that it can cause uh, symptoms, sometimes if blood sugar is fluctuating, that can cause the real erratic energy levels, especially brain fog. In many cases, the dangers don't really track up with symptoms. People can have damage occurring to their blood vessels. They can have changes to their, their kidney health taking place, all this stuff. And and the symptoms could, could be misleading for them in, in that regard. And what's happening is that the body is taking in fuel and burning it. And glucose is one of the main vehicles of fuel utilization. So you need some in your bloodstream. When you reach a point at where there's too much fuel for your cells to handle, you've got to leave it somewhere. And so the worst point is where there's just nowhere else to put it and it stays in circulation. It's like a plane's coming into land, but they've got no place. It's, the airport's too busy, so they keep on flying in the pattern around the airport. And that's, that's glucose in the bloodstream. And for a while, it seemed intuitive that if glucose is made from dietary carbohydrate, that if we just cut out carbohydrate, we could lower it. And then what we learned is that if it comes from dietary carbohydrate or it comes from skeletal muscle mass, so if we consume nothing that we can slowly make into glucose, then we raise more stress hormone to convert our muscle mass into glucose. And, and that's counterproductive as well. So yeah, the solution is really to have just an appropriate amount of food overall and have a fair amount of diversity of fiber in the diet. There's about 16 types of fiber that can be found in a healthy diet with a lot of variety. So the more categories we have are helpful. There's a special role for a thing called resistant starch, which is kind of a hybrid carbohydrate slash fiber. And it itself burns really slowly over like seven to nine hours, but it makes the body responsive for the following 24 hours at less fluctuations in blood sugar. Um, One last point, I I forgot to almost mention that you would talk about insulin resistance. So that's a way in which the body dampens its response to insulin. Normally insulin causes the cells to open up and take in glucose and amino acids and also fatty acids. But when insulin resistance is in place, the cells don't do that as well. And it's often thought of as if it's like a mistake or something is broken or there's a disease and it's not an accident. It's just the body saying, hey, we got no room for that. You know, leave that out on purpose because these cells can't handle that. So the solution is not to find some way to you know, damage or, or to, to attack insulin. The trick is just to get the body to where it's no longer at a few chronic fuel excess. So would, in that circumstance where the cells are full of glucose, they've stopped responding to insulin, is that not the time where maybe a low-carb or ketogenic diet would be effective? Well, it can, but fat can cause this too. You know, I mentioned how insulin also affects fat uptake. So low-carb ketogenic diets, they, you can also end up creating a resistant state to triglycerides where you've now got higher triglycerides or you can not improve the, the glucose from that. If they're talking about the same amount of food, there's not a benefit by trading carbs for fats. You, you don't improve the state. And ironically, ketogenic is thought of as being like the pinnacle of fat burning. And it's really the exact opposite. So the body has a process called beta oxidation. 
And that's when fat is being burned for fuel. You're pulling off two carbons at a time and putting those in the Krebs cycle. And when there's inadequate glucose to run beta oxidation, then those same precursor molecules are converted to ketones, which the liver can't burn. The liver can't do anything with those at all. So it's not a superior state of fat burning. It's the exact opposite. It's the antithesis of fat burning. The body burns fat for fuel when there's some carbohydrate present. I've experienced something similar myself. So when I was on a lower carbohydrate diet, so I've got PCOS. When I was on a lower carbohydrate diet, I would wake up with quite high fasting blood glucose levels. So I think in US, probably around the 5.5, um, mm. 100, sorry, um, in your conversion. And then I went a week where I tried to have more carbohydrate-rich breakfast, so things like oatmeal, um, gluten-free toast, and my blood glucose levels actually dropped after consuming that, and they've been in much better ranges. So what would be your explanation for that? <laughs> That's exactly what I was describing. Hmm. So the other part about that is your, your people wake up, we look at our fasting glucose levels, and those are not the same as our glucose after a diet. So over the course of the night, that's when your liver is managing your blood sugar mostly by itself. And so when it's got too much fuel and it's leaking out, it gets a gentle signal called uh, glucagon, and that tells it to release some glycogen. So your blood sugar drops as you're sleeping, you ask your liver for some more, and a healthy liver gives you just what you need. But if the liver has too much fuel built up, we call this the whole leaky liver state, that's when it over-responds and you wake up with higher levels of glucose. And the more stable and steady your blood sugar is, and fibers are a big part of that, then the less likely the liver is to get overloaded. So the paradox is that, you know, there's tons of people that are on diets that are full of just processed food in general. And if, 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 their, if their rubric is low carbohydrate, that might bring them to a diet that's just lower in total food and less processed food, and perhaps it helps. But it was not that the carbohydrate was inherently bad, it was the total food quantity and the amount of processed food that was the problem. So yeah, the higher solution is to have a good balance of healthy carbohydrates from a lot of variety of sources and lean proteins and some good fats and all the rest in amounts that works well for your body. Combinations of carbohydrates and fat, does that really spike insulin or is it fine to have a balance of all three at every meal? Well, so the, the, spiking, the spiking of insulin is really a function of just total carbohydrate. And if there's a high amount of that, you'll see a stronger insulin response, but it's, it's really quantity. And a spiking of insulin to some degree is, is healthy and normal and not undesirable. If insulin is remaining high in a fasted state, that is a concern. But if insulin is too low, that shuts down the body's ability to form glutathione. It impairs the immune response and it blocks the activation of thyroid hormones. So some, some fluctuation of insulin is completely appropriate. If the basal background levels are remaining high, that is a sign of the body being in a high fuel state. And the high fuel state is dangerous. The danger is not from the insulin, but the insulin is a sign the body's in a state that is a, a dangerous one. What about for someone who's already on a restricted calorie diet? Say there's a woman who is overweight, maybe she's on 1400 calories a day what would be driving the insulin resistance if she's not in that fuel overload state well the last part you said is an if that i'm not <laughs> she she so you can be at a low food intake so I'll back up to the liver thing so when your liver's working well your body will take in the fuel you need and store it in a safe way 
when your liver is not working well, your total fuel intake, your total food intake may not be high, but your body, when it takes on a meal, all it can do is store that fuel in a harmful way. All it can do is jam it as fat around the cells. And that's what engenders the insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. So if your liver is stuck in that capacity, that can occur even if your total food intake might be below some caloric threshold. So that's, that's a matter of not so much what are, you know, how much more restrictive do you need to be? It's more a matter of how can you change how the liver's working? Yeah. And that's, that's the whole, what the metabolism reset diet is about. That's a 28 day process that reverses that blockage. So why don't you explain what your first steps would be in that instance, the first processes to look into when trying to improve your liver health? Yeah, so we did a clinical trial on a, a combination of, of steps, and they're done together as a group over 28 days, and they include having a healthy amount of plant protein, a fair amount of resistant starch, some pretty good balanced meals, and just a large variety of types of fiber, lots of produce, and a smaller total number of feeding times. So uh, a shake for breakfast and lunch, a good evening meal, and then some unlimited veggie snacks is the basic basic concept behind it. And what happens is you're getting adequate protein to give the liver the conjugating agents it needs to bind up and excrete that stored fat. And you're also giving it a lot of micronutrients and phytonutrients to keep it active. You're using the resistant starch to let the liver rebuild its glycogen stores. And the combination of that lets it get glycogen back and the toxic fat down. So I mentioned briefly how beta oxidation requires glucose. So your liver has to have a certain balance of glycogen to triglycerides. And in a state like you're describing with your friends, she's getting in a situation to where there's too much triglyceride and too little glycogen. And you need glycogen to burn triglyceride. So that's the vicious cycle. When that ratio gets too far off, the body gets really stuck. And when you can't burn triglyceride, each time you have a meal, whatever you consume from that gets stored as more triglyceride. And even if it wasn't a lot of food, it gets jammed up in the liver and it can't come out as well. So yeah, so this process reverses that and gets glycogen stores back up again so the body can then self-regulate afterward. Hmm. Do you ever use intermittent fasting with your resets? Uh, quite a while ago, I did test people with that. I've, I've used a device called a continuous glucose meter and that shows glucose levels 24 seven. And I would look at that with people who are in the diabetic continuum in various ways. And there certainly are people who have had intermittent fasting be helpful for them for weight loss purposes. When someone is metabolically compromised, it, it can be counterproductive. You know, they may have higher amounts of stress hormones because of that. They may have, so the protein I mentioned, there, it's important how much protein you get for your liver, but it's also important how often your doses of protein come on board. So if there's too long of gaps without that, then there's more of a compromise of liver health and more of a breakdown of muscle tissue. In terms of all the biggest studies to date, yeah, intermittent fasting can work well for some for weight loss, but when they dive deep and look closely, there's, there's no more weight loss than the people would have had had they eaten that same food quantity spread throughout the day. So yeah, there's, it seems that there's not so much a way in which the timing changes all of it, but there may be some people in which that's a convenient way to eat less. So the group studies, whoever have shown that, the dropout rates and the adherence rates are not higher on intermittent fasting as far as a group goes than just on simple food restriction. Yeah, and people who are adrenally stressed or have thyroid issues, they tend to crash. And again, yeah. that raises stress hormones, raises inflammation, and just makes it worse. Yeah, if Absolutely. someone already tried that and it worked for them, that's awesome. But if someone's not knowing what to try, the data doesn't suggest that if you have problems like this, it would be the best approach for you. 
Okay, cool. And you mentioned about having protein in kind of a regular time method. So having it at every meal. Why don't you explain about carbohydrates and the timing of carbohydrates? So I know that the your is it the adrenal thyroid? The adrenal, uh, reset, the adrenal reset diet. The adrenal reset diet and the timing of carbohydrates, maybe in terms of supporting the stress response as well. Yeah. You know, the big, the big takeaway there was that the absence of carbohydrate, especially with the evening meal, can drive a higher nighttime cortisol level. So, so glucose in the bloodstream is non-negotiable. The only thing that you can negotiate is where it comes from. You know, either it comes from your food or it comes from your muscle mass. And it comes from your muscle mass, your body uses higher amounts of stress hormone to help pull sugar out of your muscles, which is not what you want. And that's especially a problem at nighttime when your body needs that that long break from cortisol. I mentioned before about that cortisol rhythm being part of hormone absorption. It's also part of glycogen rebuilding. So when your liver needs glycogen to burn fat, it can only make glycogen if there's adequate glucose available and if there's a nice long break from cortisol at nighttime. So the benefit of having healthy carbs that can make slowly absorb glucose at night are many fold, but they include the ability to burn fat again more effectively. Mm -hmm. And when someone's in a stress situation, we tend to hear about the elevations in blood glucose levels. But is it right that carbohydrates, the healthy kind, obviously, can actually suppress and support cortisol? Mm -hmm, For sure. And cortisol itself, first and foremost, is a glucocorticoid. It's a blood sugar regulating hormone. So yeah, heightened stress state can pull more out of storage. And that's especially a problem when there's breakdown of muscle tissue. So if there's an adequate intake of good unprocessed glucose rich carbohydrate, then there's less need for cortisol signaling in that same level of stress. Just before we finish up, I want to ask you a few personal questions just to see how you stay healthy and keep your adrenals and thyroid in balance too. So the first one would be, (laughs) what do you have for breakfast typically? Do you have a go-to breakfast? Um, Boy, I've got a lot of them. (laughs) (laughs) Typically, I roll out of bed about four o'clock in the morning. I have a small meal before my workouts and I'll have a meal afterward and usually another one an hour or two after that. I typically have about three or four breakfasts before lunch. I, I do the bulk of my training first thing in the morning and I do an hour or two of training most days. And uh, when things are going well, I hit it pretty hard. So that's, that's when I'm following my cues. That's when I'm hungry quite a bit. And if I did eat much higher food volumes or much higher fat contents, I, I could go longer between meals, but I, I do well on what I do with the fiber and the nutrients. Later in the day, I'll have lunch and dinner and not, not as much, but a lot of breakfasts, uh, typical foods with those will include um, old uh, steel cut oats. Um, I love Danish rye bread. I make some homemade versions of that. I'll do some sourdough breads as well. Uh, lots, of, lots of beans. I'll make some refried beans at home or black beans. Eggs are pretty common. Love mushrooms, lots of, lots of mushrooms, spinach, onions, uh, nuts, nuts and seeds, walnuts especially, berries, lots of berries. I love oranges, um, apples, a few raisins and oatmeal. So uh, I love um, the Icelandic drinkable yogurt. Uh, that's, mm. that's great stuff. Yeah. So that's a morning staple too. But those are some of the breakfast foods. <laughs> cool. And just speaking on the frequent meals that you're having in the morning, so two or three meals um, before lunchtime, what's three your four. three or four meals? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what about the people who say that eating frequently affects your metabolism? So either positively, like we used to think it kind of fuels the me- metabolic rate, or the other people who say it's going to ruin your metabolism, you're going to keep spiking insulin. 
what's your feedback on that? Um, it's, that's been thoroughly, thoroughly studied and it's just not relevant. It's just not true. You don't raise your metabolism by eating more often and your food frequency also is not a detriment apart from your, your total food intake. You know, if your total food intake is too high, that's a problem, but the frequency of it really is a matter of personal preference. There's no, there's no magic solution and no harm for your food frequency. And how do we determine what our optimal food intake is? Do you recommend counting calories or just going off how you feel or if you're losing weight? You know, they're all relevant for where someone is in their journey. Some people have been at it for quite a while and they're pretty in touch with how their bodies are working. Others don't have, they're not getting good signals, not getting good feedback at, at first. And so they may do better off with some, some more tracking and some watching. But those, those are all valid tools to look at. And ultimately your, your, your health per your daily symptoms, how, sta how steady your energy is, your, your satiety, your blood chemistry, any disease risk, risk factors, your physical performance, you know, your, your body weight, your body composition, those are all things to take into, a, into account for, the, for that. Mm -hmm. Great. So question number two is, if there was one herb, nutrient, or supplement that you just couldn't live without, so say you're stranded on a desert island, what would you need with you? Oh, boy. Herb, <laughs> nutrient, supplement. This is a tough one. <laughs> I, would, I would choose potatoes. Really? <laughs> I have not had that one before. Why would that be? Um, well, if there was one, one food, because herb, nutrient, supplement, honestly, de the desert island, I guess I would, I would, I would choose a, a, a cellular, a, a satellite phone for this. Yeah. <laughs> I've got all my choices. <laughs> that would be my satellite phone and a flare gun. <laughs> but that's not herb. So, um, yeah, if it were, if it were a food, it would be potatoes for sure. Uh, my, my background, my, my family's all Irish and the, the sad joke is, how do you, how many potatoes does it take to kill an Irishman? Like, that <laughs> this is terrible. This is a dark joke. Go on. <laughs> the answer is zero. <laughs> <laughs> horrible. I lost ancestors that way. So it's a oh. horrible joke, but, but no, the, if you could choose one food as a survival food, that's definitely the one I would choose. Mm. And there's a lot of, a lot of strong nutritional reasons for that. You can, yeah. you can get by on that for quite a while. Um, if it were a nutrient or herb or a supplement, I don't know. Um, perhaps astragalus as a general adaptogen, immune tonic sort of thing. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, that, my main concern would be food and survival and yeah. getting found. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I just listened to a podcast of a guy who did the potato diet. I think he was kind of famous for it a couple of years ago. The potato fun. hack? The yeah, book or, yeah, yeah. So Good book. Yeah, I'll have to read that book, yeah. There's a lot of cases of people who have done that in the past intentionally know, for yeah. purposes of changing their gut health or whatever else. But there's a lot of, lot of case studies about survival situations and some, you know, not intentional in which that was a sole food. And yeah, you're always better off with a diet of more variety. But if there was one food, and this is just a quick funny thing too, there was one big study done on satiety per calorie, you know, how much foods filled you up per their caloric load. And I'll often hear people say that, oh, fat fills you up for four hours and carbs fills you up for two hours. It's been studied and foods are all different. So in the study, they gave people controlled quantities of food and they had them come in after a set amount of time of not eating. And they recorded their hunger levels before and after based on their subjective ratings. And they gave them access to a buffet after set time frames and watched how soon they wanted to eat and how much they ate. So they used all these metrics to see how long this thing filled them up. And the more foods had fiber, starch, and water, generally the more filling they were, 
fat really had no impact upon satiety, but foods were kind of on a continuum and the highest scoring foods were in the low 200s. And then there was one outlier all by itself in the mid 300s, and that was potatoes, that was <laughs> boiled potatoes. So completely in a class by itself for its satiety impact. Yeah, you'd usually think the opposite, wouldn't you? Like people think of baked potatoes or French fries, you could eat them all day long. Um, as compared to a steak, but they do have the full nutritional profile and just that so starch. So I did say and... boiled. <laughs> oh, boiled. Okay, yeah. So baked but... and French fries and potatoes. So potato chips, ah, ironically, yes. are the very bottom of satiety per calorie. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, Makes it doesn't sense. matter with these things a lot. <laughs> yeah. With the combination of the, the fat and the salt, I think that's going to be a little bit different, isn't it? <laughs> you can eat them all well, so baking, baking, you break down the resistant starch. So when you're boiling, it's preserved and it's intact. And so there's more water that stays bound with that. And there's a slower rate of absorption and assimilation because of it too. Mm. And the guy who, who did it, the one that I listened to, he was a food addict and it helped him to overcome that. So he did it for a full year and he completely reversed all of his symptoms, which, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. So the third and final question is, where can people find more about you online and where can they get your book and just tell us where they can find you on social media too. You know, easy thing online, uh, drchristensen.com. And that's really our hub for all things. All of our, of our social media is accessed there. We do a challenge each month. We've got one coming up actually in just a, a couple of days. That'll be for the metabolism reset challenge. So the whole thing in the book, we put the first week of that free online. Anyone can jump on and see if it makes sense for them, if it's helpful. In the book, you can find that wherever books are sold. We've got the Metabolism Reset Diet in the UK and Europe and, and throughout America and all the major bookstores. So pretty easy to find. Yeah, and your information, you've got really good articles and you've been on a ton of other podcasts too. So you can just search your name and you'll find out a lot of information. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. As I mentioned before, I've been a big fan of yours for many years now and your information has definitely helped me improve my health as well. So awesome. thank you so much for your time and I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for the kind words and yeah, I'm happy to, happy to spend time with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Hormones in Harmony podcast. If you like this episode, please leave me a rating or review as this helps to spread the word to other women dealing with hormone imbalances. As a massive thank you gift, I'll send you a free guide, Six Steps to Hormonal Harmony. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review, then email it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and I'll send you the link to download this free guide. If you haven't already, check out my website vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and Instagram page at vivanaturalhealth for tons more free content and inspiration. You can also schedule a free 30-minute hormone troubleshooting call to find out the next steps to take in order to overcome your symptoms naturally. See you back here next week for another episode.